Turn, if you will, to Psalm 16. That's been more than two and a half months since I've, I guess, preached, at least in a morning assembly. So I feel rusty if something pops up on my computer. I was back there getting ready and antivirus stuff is popping up because I haven't used this computer since then either, except maybe once. But it was a long time ago. So don't be surprised if something pops up in the middle here. At least I was able to get connected. All right, so broadly, we've been dealing with the, the theme of discipleship. Someone could say, well, you've been a long time on it. Well, you know, we started, we got, did some things in the Gospels. And then we've been looking at Acts chapter 2 because Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We looked through each of the presentations of the Great Commission, their characteristics uh, altogether about those, and Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of it. So if we're going to understand discipleship, then, well, gosh, let's, let's see how it happens in Acts chapter 2. Well, being who I am and Acts 2 being what it is, I uh, had to smell some roses along the way. It's just a great chapter. There are important chapters in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are important chapters in the Bible. You go through Genesis and pick some, you know, real highlights, Genesis 12, um, Genesis 22, uh, and so on. Uh, There are Psalms that are important, places in the prophets. These are all important chapters, and Acts chapter 2 is one of those just really significant chapters. So discipleship hasn't been talked about much, but when we get to the end of this, we're going to see, well, what's been happening is the apostles have been making disciples. They have been preaching to a crowd of unbelievers. And he's going to bring them into the kingdom by preaching the gospel to them according to their state and according to their need. And these people who are needed, folks who needed to repent of murdering the Lord of glory. And so their need was conviction. And they were Jewish folks. Their need was confidence from the Old Testament. And so those are the things that are brought up. Peter is speaking to his audience. We must always speak to the audience before us, not the audience of 500 years ago in the Reformation, not the audience of some 200 years from now, but the audience we have today and the audience we have before us. That's important. And so they are bringing people into the kingdom. The Gospels present Jesus in person. He comes personally and he accomplishes redemption. The book of Acts shows preaching to to people to bring them into the kingdom. The epistles of the apostles Um, are letters given to teach those who have come into the kingdom. And the book of Revelation is there to present what is the nature of this kingdom as it moves forward in human history. The New Testament has a a great, uh, uh, sort of a great structure. If you haven't read The Progress of Doctrine in the New Testament by Thomas Bernard, that book is one of the best books ever written, really. Uh, It's up there on the top of list, should be, and he goes through and shows why each section of the New Testament was written, what it contributes. But discipleship, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see how the church is to be organized. What do you do as a church? And do we do the navigator-style model of discipleship? Do we do these other things? Or is there a pattern presented to us at the end of Acts chapter 2 that is repeated across the New Testament? And so Acts chapter 2 is very much about discipleship, but if you're thinking that, oh, well, you know, I, wanna, I want to just have a quick thing, run down on discipleship, 
uh, you won't get that from me, at least not right now. You will maybe in, in a few weeks, but uh, not at this point. Because I want us to understand that a disciple is simply a follower of Christ. Discipleship is a term that's quasi-Christian, very handy, and seems very full and rich. Uh, I've been sort of doing some stuff for our reading in the Old Testament, and it says about Seth then, Enish, rather, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And you go, okay, calling upon the name of the Lord, that's a rich term, isn't it? That's just full. You know what it means, right? Until you try to explain it to me. Then you go, let's see, calling on the name of the Lord, what does that really mean? It's the same thing with discipleship. It sounds really good, sounds like it, you know, it really has some substance to it until you try to explain it from the Bible. And then you realize, oh, yeah, it's not really a term that's used to describe Christianity. So here we are, dealing with discipleship. I'm fine with the word as long as we know what it means, what it contains. So that's what we've been doing. What does it contain? So the first thing we did uh, in this uh, journey through Acts 2 is we looked at the event, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It was very visible. People were prophesying by speaking in the languages of other nations, And it was Pentecost, so everybody from other nations was there, and they were hearing the mighty works of God. It was not the speaking in tongues of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It was really prophecy, what it was in other languages. And so this this event uh, is the immediate background for Peter's preaching. And the first thing he does is he takes us to Joel chapter 2. And he grounds this event in Scripture. This that you're seeing, this that God is doing, this that is an absolute miraculous event that could only come from God because it's God's Holy Spirit at work in people's lives. This has an interpretation. This has a background to it. In the prophecy of Joel, behold, a day will come and I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And there'll be all these uh, sort of apocalyptic uh, descriptions around it. And then there'll be men calling upon the name of the Lord. And as we bring Joel into the New Testament, here in Acts 2 and a few other places, we see that this is the structure of the history of redemption. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. There will be a final day called the last day, but as Scripture in a number of places speaks, we have been in those last days since Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Spirit. That inaugurated the last days in the language of Scripture. Peter then having said, hey, in fulfillment of this great prophecy, you've seen and heard what's going on here. Well, there's some things that you all have to deal with. And he brings an indictment against the people before him, his audience. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Jesus had performed these miracles. They were things beyond human capability and capacity, specifically for that time. We can do some uh, modern medicine, but we can't immediately heal someone by just putting hands on them or speaking to them or putting dirt on eyes. Jesus did that. People knew it. These are things beyond human capability. God was at work. These are the only the things that a creator God could accomplish. Miracles, wonders, and signs. These things weren't to wow people so much as they were to point to Jesus for who he was and the kingdom that was now at hand. God did these in your midst, just as you yourselves know. These things were self-evident. He didn't have to spend a lot of time convincing the crowd that Jesus was a miracle worker. There's no need for historical apologetics on this matter. 
The Jesus seminar would not have worked with this crowd because they knew who Jesus was. They had seen him work. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We went through and, and just noted that whatever occurred occurred according to the sovereign will of God. It occurred according to the eternal purposes of God. This was not an accident and this was not just a human-sponsored thing. In the end, God was behind it from all eternity. The foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Whatever the method used, a pseudo-judicial process, whoever actually did the deed of the crucifixion was a disinterested occupying Roman military. Whatever these facts are, you are in the end responsible and culpable for this death. So he spent some time bringing conviction for their sin. Psalm 16, he starts to going to speak of, and he first of all brings up the resurrection. You put him to death, but God raised him up again. Peter starts with a simple, plain, but powerful assertion of historical fact. You put him to death, fact. God raised him up again, fact. There's an empty tomb right down the road from you. It became empty some 50 days ago. Every dynamic that humans can employ was used against Jesus, but God raised him up. God raised him up. And when he raised him up, he put an end to the agony of death. Until God raised him up, Jesus was in a state of real death. Always remember that. Some folks say that Jesus didn't die. Some folks have some, I don't know, just philosophical uh, attempts to try to obscure what death is for their own false theological reasons. Uh, it's real death, an end to the agony of death. Jesus endured the awful realities of death. He endured the process of dying and he endured the resultant state of death. Psalm 22 starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The worst part of death, the essence of death, the ultimate essence of death, is separation from God. Again, if, if you're here this morning and you know Christ, you will never know what Jesus experienced. Death. Not in that way. Not in that separation. When we die as Christians, our souls pass into the presence of God. But if you're not in Christ this morning, and you die in this world, no matter how old you are, no matter how nice you are, you will pass immediately to a space in which you will be waiting for that ultimate judgment. Separation from God forever. Jesus had to suffer this because he had to pay for our sin and that is part of the price. And because he's an infinite person, it was an infinite suffering, it was an infinite agony, it was an infinite separation. Hence, the infinite Messiah, the infinite Redeemer, can redeem an infinite number of people from an infinite number of sins. And that's why he had to be the God-man. By the grace of God and the new covenant, Jesus tasted death for every man, Hebrews chapter 2, the agony of death. And God raised him up because it wasn't possible for him to be held in its power. Again, held in its power means held in its grip. Its grip firmly, a strong grip. When you're a kid and your dad grabs you because you, you're, you're just doing something dumb, bad, or you're about to really get hurt, and your dad grabs you, you're like, oh, <laughs> 
not getting out of that grip. I remember when I was at a zoo one time and uh, they had a baby mountain lion. It was only about seven months old. So it was still cute. You want to pet it and everything else. And so the guy pulls it out of the cage. I'm like, wait a minute, because he was about 60 pounds. And that thing grabbed my foot. And I knew one thing for sure. You were not get out of his grip. Not going to happen. And Jesus was in the grip of death. And yet God delivers him. It's a grip that can't be reversed by human effort. It can only be reversed by God. God raised him up because he's the eternal son of God. He's the holy one of God. He's the righteous one of God. He's the prince of life. He was not going to be held in its power. And God raised him up because he was not there for his own sins, but for the sins of others. God raised him up because he had paid the price for the sins whom he represented. Hebrews 1.3, when he had made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 4.23-25, he was raised for our justification. He's been appointed a great high priest who is at the right hand of God. And so, not only because he is who he is, but what he has done and what is his place in the history of redemption, that he was not able to be held in its power. And so, that sort of leads us up to Psalm 16, and the partial quote we find in Acts. For David says, concerning him, Peter says. So what I just told you about the resurrection is something that's part of Scripture. Remember, in Christianity, the New Testament is but the fulfillment of the Old. The New Testament is on a higher plane than the old. The New Testament takes obscurities in the old and fulfills them in realities and plainness. It takes types and shadows and symbols and fulfills them. But it's, there's one Bible, and I really wish there could be a Bible where there's no intervention, there's no Old Testament, New Testament. It just starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. That's the whole Bible. That's the whole picture. And it should be seen as one continuous, consecutive reality. The new covenant comes and brings fulfillment, but it's still one book of God. So Peter's appealing to the Old Testament scripture. He's doing this with a crowd that that feels and has been raised in the authority of scripture. And he states that David wrote Psalm 16, for David says concerning Jesus. So if you're going to read Psalm 16, the first thing you've got to know is the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter and the inspiration of the book of Acts says that Psalm 16, written by David, but it's about the Messiah. That's your first principle of interpretation. Fulfillment determines interpretation. David says concerning him, the psalm is messianic, the Spirit of Christ was speaking through David. Now, Paul in another place does the same thing. And just again, we want to show similarities. I know this is kind of review, but if you're like me, I was reading, brush, dusting this message off early this morning, and I'm like, I don't remember any of this, so pretty sure you all uh, won't remember much of it. Paul in Acts chapter 13, another key passage in the book of Acts, another chapter you should know and read. We bring you good tidings of the promise made unto the fathers. Paul's saying, here's what I'm doing. He's got a Jewish audience. 
Paul had a Jewish audience speaking this, but when he had a Gentile audience, he said things very differently. Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17 are to a Gentile audience. Things are presented differently. But to this Jewish audience at Antioch, who believed in the authority of Scripture, and Scripture was everything to their way of thinking, we bring you good tidings of the promise made unto the fathers. The promise. That God has fulfilled the same unto our children. So if you're going to go into the Old Testament and interpret it, this is where you start. You start with how the apostles viewed the Old Testament. The Old Testament is being fulfilled. The promises in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in Jesus. And in the resurrection of Jesus, in the present reign that results from that resurrection. God has fulfilled the same unto our children, and he raised up Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an event in history. It's a fulfillment of the history of redemption. Something that has been in the mind and heart of God before he ever made the universe. He raised up Jesus. That's where everything points to, and that's where everything moves from. As also it's written in the second psalm. So now we have Psalm 2. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. People get perplexed over Psalm 2. What does that mean, this day have I begotten you? Lots of interpretations. Well, just keep it simple. Read Acts 13. Read Acts chapter 4. And you see it's the resurrection of the Christ. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And it's concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He's not going to go back into a grave. He's not going to go back and die. He's raised up from the dead, not from swooning, not from sickness, but from the dead. Now no more to return to corruption. And he has spoken on this wise, I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isaiah 55, Dylan spoke on that last week. The holy and sure blessings of David. So when David is raised from the dead, what is he doing? He's fulfilling all of the promises of God to David. We're going to read that in the next section in Acts 2. It's important. Because he says also in another psalm, Psalm 2, you will not give your Holy One to see corruption. So here we have a statement by Paul that the whole Old Testament, the promises of God in the Old Testament, and he speaks of the promise probably emanating from Abraham, is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Then he quotes Isaiah 55. And now he quotes Psalm 16. So at Psalm 16, I don't remember how far we got. I think we only got to verse 3 and 4 last time. But we're going to look at this psalm, and whatever you think of this psalm, remember it's the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is speaking in David in this psalm. So that's a long introduction because it's been a while and because I want this passage to be relevant. Let's just pray the Lord again to take this psalm, these very words of Jesus, Jesus speaking in 1000 BC, Jesus speaking through a man. David in his person and personality fades away as he writes this. And the person of Jesus, the Messiah, comes forth To me, this is like John chapter 17 as we read this psalm when you really get into it. So let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this psalm. It's a short psalm. A lot of brief statements. 
Lord, in every place in the New Testament, we read that it is your voice speaking in David. This is you showing your heart when it came to your life in the Gospels that we read of, your life history, and when it came to your death, and when it came to your resurrection. Lord, you were speaking in these 11 verses. You were sharing your heart with us. You were showing us what it is to be a child of God. You are the ultimate son. You are the model son. You are the eternal son, but nevertheless, you are the son. And here is true sonship. Lord, just pray that you would speak to our hearts in it, that you would set these things in our minds and hearts in just a powerful way that Psalm 16 will sing to us, will speak to us, will encourage us, enlighten us, bless us, direct us, always be watching over our shoulder as we live our lives, make our choices, and make our priorities. Lord, just pray this psalm will just be rooted deep in us. Only you can do that by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was in the psalm, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, again, just maybe for some you'll see it as a review. Preserve me, O God, is the first thing we read. David begins with this general petition of L. Preserve me, O L. And that takes us immediately back to one place. Takes us back to Genesis chapter one. Preserve me, O God, who made heaven and earth. Preserve comes from a word that means to watch over, to guard, to honor. Watch over me. Guard me. Regard me, O God. See, as individuals in this world, our meaning is not in ourselves and it's not even in people around us. Humanism, the problem with humanism is it's a dead end. I live in basically in a cul-de-sac. You pull into my street and you're coming back out that street because that's the only way in and the only way out. That's what humanism is. It posits a universe that is just more or less a set of, I don't know, personless processes operating on its, on its own. Impersonal forces at work, somehow producing personal entities. That's interesting. But that's the universe, according to humanism. The measure of any person is, well, the measure of every person. The ultimate is human beings. The great quest is to somehow find out if there's other life besides us. NASA is always presenting this. The materialist science is always presenting this as the great, great quest, and I'm always going, <laughs> we know God. There's, there's a real big person out there that you can know, but you're out looking for the wrong person. You're looking for someone as limited as you are. Humanism. Humanism is ultimate, but it's a dead end. But here is the Messiah, here is David, here is Jesus saying, preserve me, 
oh God. His perspective of existence and reality is as big as the infinite God. You don't get bigger and you never run out. It never, it never diminishes. Preserve me, O God, because you're near and dear to me. You have in this sense this bond. This is someone that the psalmist knows. This is someone the Messiah knows. There's a bond of love and trust, and you just feel it in the very opening words. Four of them, preserve me, O God. You know that in one sense, as you're watching this, as you're reading this, here's a relationship between the Messiah and his father that in one sense you can't touch. It's out there, and it's as big as eternity. Preserve me, O God. For I take refuge in you. The Son, the Messiah, takes refuge in God. He's expressing his confidence in God. He can trust in God completely. Preserve me because I've taken refuge in you. I've come to you as the place to be protected from all things. Every trouble, every danger, to shelter me, to keep me safe, to give me protection, security, asylum. This was meaningful in the 10th century BC because it was a hostile world. I don't know if you follow much what's going on over in the Middle East. And when you see the character of the people there, they're like third graders, you know. Well, I don't like you. I'm just going to blow you up. I mean, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just so one-dimensional. And the Middle East is full of these one-dimensional people who settle things at gunpoint. I don't understand it. So before you judge the things that are going on and the decisions being made by a nation trying to survive in that neighborhood, realize who those people are. They grow up that way. They're taught that way. The little children graduate from kindergarten by having mock gun battles and blowing up mock tanks at five years old. Schooled in this. Well, that was the 10th century B.C. That was David's world. Things were settled with bows and arrows and swords. It's a dangerous space. So to take refuge in that day, there wasn't much of it around to be had. All through human history, Things have been secure, haven't been all that secure. We happen to live in a bubble in history. We live at the greatest country in the history of the world at the greatest time in its history. We live in an era after World War II they call the Pax Americana, the American peace. No one has ever seen a world like this but us. Hard for us sometimes to relate to taking refuge. But in that day, it was a real thing. And Jesus, who walked among enemies, was constantly, every time you turn around, 
There are some Pharisees over there chatting with each other. You couldn't really hear what they were saying, but you knew what it was about. How do we get rid of Jesus? How do we kill Jesus? That's how they solve theological controversies. Just kill Paul. Done. Finished. God is portrayed as a refuge 42 times in the Psalms. And Jesus took refuge in his Father here on earth and in this psalm. I said to the Lord, I said to Yahweh, transferred from Elohim or El to Yahweh. I said to the Lord, and again, I, I find myself, I think a lot, so sometimes I think to God, and, and then I read the Psalms and hear the psalmist giving verbal expression, singing, raising hands, talking, pleading, crying. God wants you to pour out your heart to him in real ways. Don't be zombies. Don't come to God and say he doesn't care. Like if you have children, they come to you and they're little, well, you don't care about me. Like, that doesn't make you feel good, does it? Well, if that's how you are toward God, you think it makes them feel good? Go to God. He wants to hear your problems. He wants you to talk it out. Sure, he already knows it, but he wants to have fellowship with you in these things. And we are physical people with voices and hands and feet and emotions. I said unto the Lord, Remember what James said, you have not because you ask not. So pour out your heart to the Lord. Say things to him out loud. Talk to him in the shower. Plead with the Lord. You are my Lord, expresses a deep commitment to God. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. So guys, your wives, how many times do they want you to tell you tell them that you love them? I say, you know, once every few months, it works for me. <laughs> does not work for them, and it does not work for God, let me tell you. You are my Lord. Pour out your heart, start out your prayers. Our Father who's in heaven. Our Father. Our Father who's in heaven. We want to acknowledge how great you are, how awesome you are and that you love us, and that we are your children, you are my Lord. It's a statement of covenant love back to God. God says, I am yours, all of me, the whole of my being, I am yours. And our statement back to him should say the same thing. I'm yours too. You are my Lord. When you can do that, when God is the center of your life, there's still who you are. You still have your own personal opinions. God doesn't tell you whether you should like chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream. So you have your own personal affinities. But at the center of your life is God. And this is what sets us free. To be free from the tyranny of self. How many of you ever just like it just get sick of yourself? I know. I'm pretty sure Gwen gets sick of me, but I get sick of me more often. I'm just like, me, I'm stuck with me. Ah. Some of you say, well, Steve, you're this, this. I'm like, yeah, well, you should be me. I know it all. I know everything about me. 
You only know this much. To be free from self, to know that my personhood is grounded in God, that my personality, whatever it may be, ultimately God's looking at character. And he can put up with my eccentricities. Because I say to him, you are my Lord. This is a real thing. This is the deep conviction. This is what you're saying in baptism, by the way. We're going to get to that in Acts 2. Baptism is saying to God, to angels, to a universe, to the world, to the saints around you, to yourself. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's at the center of things. That's where Christianity begins. You don't get baptized after 20 years, unless, of course, you're in New Covenant, you've got to wait a while. You're supposed to get baptized, like, right away, to declare, you are my Lord. That's where Christianity begins. I have no good besides you. There are many good things in the world. In America, we have lots of good. Most of the world has never seen or even imagined. But in the end, when compared to God and who he is and what it is to be a child of God, what it is to belong to God, it's just things. It's just stuff. It's just sideshow. The ultimate expression of the new birth is found in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And we cry, Abba, Father. I have no good beyond you, besides you, in the place of you. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. There he is. Praying to God, saying to God with the disciples around him, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. God gives us many good things to enjoy, but they, we ultimately find our center and meaning in God himself. That's why Psalm 3, over the, over the years, there's various ones of you who have read Psalm 3 and you have commented and just sort of said, how in the end of that psalm he says, you know, you make me full of gladness with your countenance more than their new wine and their grain. And that's what David is trying to say. Nothing wrong with new wine and grain if you're in an agri- agricultural society and that's, how it, and that's the publics that you get is to get the new wine and the grain. You gotta eat and enjoy life in some ways, but God is beyond them all. Sin moves people to want to enjoy God's good things without God. As Christians, we see that God does give good things. God is good, but how empty and pointless without him as the center of it all. As for the saints who are in the earth, psalmist turns now to people, especially those who are currently alive and present. As for the saints who are in the earth, that is, people who follow God. This is at the center of the Son, the Messiah's heart and soul 
It's being poured out to us, being opened up to us. It's not the stuff of God. It's not the things of God so much. Those are good, and I'll enjoy them. I'll enjoy some chocolate ice cream once I'm not doing keto. But it's the people of God who are our treasure. Human beings who love God. Sure, they have their struggles, and sure, they have their rough edges, and sure, they have their eccentricities, but they are the people of God. So when someone says, well, I can be a Christian but not go to church, and I can understand there's some churches I wouldn't want to go to. But nevertheless, they just, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yes, you do. Fellowship with other believers is not optional. Now, you may be in a situation where you can't. That's one thing. But when you can and don't, that's quite another. All through the New Testament, we ought to love one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just like I have loved you as for the saints who are in the earth. Now, there's lots of saints in heaven one day we're going to meet. And we didn't have to live with Abraham, so we didn't see any of his eccentricities and foibles. So we go, man, what an awesome guy. I'm pretty sure Sarah Sarah would have a few comments to make on the side. The saints are in the earth, real saints, with all the rough edges, with all the foibles, all the eccentricities. So any perspective that isolates us from God is not from God. Any perspective of elitism or self-importance importance is not from God. Any perspective that shows dis- discriminating distinctions among the people of God is not from God. Any perspective that elevates self, oneself, or others to a celebrity strat- status. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, that's what it's all about. Don't turn ministers of the gospel into celebrities. Don't do it. Saints in the earth were all of value. They're majestic ones. Spiritual maturity recognizes and regards how precious each and every saint is to God. We're all in Christ. We're all redeemed by precious blood. We are all everlastingly beloved of God. We're the children of God. We're the majestic ones. That's how we should regard one another. Now that is not how the world will regard us. They're going to regard us as problems, problematic, as those who are just stubborn, as fundamentalists, as troublers. Because our very lives testify that we're not humanists and that this is God's universe and you don't get to live as you want. You don't get to live out the lie of Satan. You'll become as gods, discerning good and evil for yourselves. We are the majestic ones. And this is where God's heart is. Jesus had his center and delight in his brethren. (coughs) Jesus had access to angels. Jesus had been with God in eternity and was going back there. John 17, that's what it's all about. But that final statement of John 17, one that is probably for me, 
the most mystifying, significant statement in all of Scripture. Father, I desire that they be with me where I am, that the love wherewith you love me may be in them and I in them. God loves his people as much as he loves his son. Is that how you see yourself? Are you still thinking most of the time you're getting a raw deal from God somehow? When you start complaining to God that you got a raw deal, (laughs) you need to go to John 17, last verse. That's where you need to go and go, I just, just put a cork in it and go on with the day and don't just grin and bear it, but just say, Lord, you are the sovereign one. This is happening according to your will. How do I fix this? How do I manage this? To the praise of your glory before angels and principalities and powers who are looking on. Gossip and criticism of others. Bite the tongue off if you have to, just do it. I mean, we all find ourselves about to make an assessment and go, is it really my place to make that assessment and that judgment about someone in whom is all of God's delight? You parents, when one of the kids comes to accuse the other kid, what are you sitting there doing going, ah, I love them both. This one right now, I'm going to wring the neck. This one right here, uh, what do they do to provoke it? But you're trying to sort something out here while they're picking on each other. And you're just going, ah, what? be at peace. And that's what the Lord says to us. Why are you worried about Steve's eccentricities? Either avoid them or enjoy them. But don't make it your business to fix them unless there's a real biblical problem going on. Maybe those eccentricities might do you well one day. In whom is all my delight. Our strategy is showing hospitality without murmuring. Our strategy is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and in honor to prefer one another. Brothers and sisters, the one thing that will destroy a church, any really, any group of people more quickly is gossip and criticism. Enjoy one another. You're not the measure of reality. God is. And he's created a whole host of people. The sorrows of those who have bartered for, one, for another God will be multiplied. This is an idiom for idolatry. Bartered for another God. Been concerned about another God. Starting to put their eggs in the basket of another God. These are those who trust in actual false gods or in that ultimate false god that is so intellectual and sophisticated, but a false god nonetheless, the god of humanism, engulfing our world, trying to erase God. Those who have bartered for another god. Idolatry betrays God, trades God in for something else, reinvents and exchanges the true God for a lie. Happens all the time. Doesn't have to be an idol you bow down and worship. Now, idolatry is transferring your allegiance to something else. And they say, well, don't make idols of your children. I just, uh, I 
like if everything's an idol, nothing's an idol, let's be careful. If you put too much value in, in your children, you, you might get disappointed when they leave home. Might happen. How many of you spend all the day thinking and thanking your parents that they raised you, you adults? Well, d- don't expect that from your children when they become adults either then, okay? Put your eggs in the right place. God himself. Children are a blessing, mostly, but they will not replace God in your life. Shouldn't. Going after other gods is considered throughout the Old Testament spiritual adultery. Stay away from it. Don't trade God in. You don't want to be traded in. Don't trade him in. The sorrows will be multiplied who do this. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. You see, people give up God, so therefore God gives them up. There is this process where God gives people up who give him up. And sorrows multiply. We live in a world (coughs) that is giving up God or creating its own image of God, whether that's Islam, whether that's some other false religion of Christianity, Buddhism, the big world religions, the big distortions of Christianity, they're out there. People trading God in for their own version of things. Sorrows will ultimately be multiplied. Again, you, we're you know, reading, if you're doing the reading list, reading through the first chapters of Genesis, they're, they're difficult chapters because there's things that are kind of fuzzy and obscure. Also, God's putting uh, 1,600 years of human history into three chapters, two really. He's got to squeeze it all in there. So it's, it's interesting, God picks the most salient points that tell us how to understand the history of the world and its beginnings. So some of the things will be obscure. Some of the things will be a limited statement. Some of the things will leave us scratching our heads. But you see the sorrows of the world multiplying because they give up God. Starts with Cain as the example. Trades in God and ends up a murderer and a wanderer and a fugitive in the earth. Be careful who you hang out with. Be careful who you idolize. Be careful who you think has a good life. Remember, what is it, Psalm 73? All these rich people, they have it great, do they? As they regularly check into drug rehabs and things like that, do they? Be careful. I'm not going to pour out the drink offerings of blood for these gods. I'm not going to participate in their ceremonies, in their viewpoints, in their rituals. I'm not going to show any allegiance to them. I'm not going to take their names on my lips. For the false representations and ideas of false religion, I am not going to engage in it. I'm not going to endorse it. I'm not going to pass it on. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm not going to call upon them for refuge or for help. I'm not going to swear an oath to them. You young people, you're being enticed by a world, particularly an American world, that has thrown God out, kicked him to the side, and, the, and replaced him with all kinds of spiritism and what used to be considered serious darkness. Witchcraft, yeah. 
All the movies now about all the witches of this and that that are all these little nice people who have the normal struggles of life and then they'll just pop in and do some magic. My generation, they had some of those, but they were light and innocent compared to now. All the movies that glory in witchcraft, all the stories, all the books. Be careful. I was in real witchcraft before I got saved. I'm tell you what, you do not want to be there. You do not want the end of that darkness. And this world try to draw you into it. Sci-fi now takes you really to that world of spiritual darkness. It used to just be aliens would eat you because that's what aliens are supposed to do. I mean, they're doing what aliens do. But now they drag you into spiritual darkness. All of the sci-fi goes into the world of Satan. Be careful. Do not take their names on your lips. These things are not innocent. So again, today's idolatry takes the form of materialism, scientism, feminism, social justice, politics, and so on. Name your poison, as people will say. It's all awful. Don't be fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Stay out of these things. Be careful how much you engage in them. Politics looks innocent on the surface. Be careful how deep you go. Gwen and I are aware of some people that got into that and went deeper and deeper and deeper, and now you don't even want to talk to them. They're so crazy about the stuff. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage is a beautiful one. Where's all this terminology come from? The book of Joshua? The apportionment of the land? The inheritance, the allotment, the boundary lines that were there that God made and gave? And hear Messiah, hear Jesus in spirit speaking in this psalm. He's saying, everything you've done for me, everything you've given me, all the boundaries you have set in my life are for me and for my good. And they're a blessing and they're a joy. The New Testament takes up that language, by the way. Paul talks about inheritance. Where does it come from? The Old Testament. He doesn't pull it off the sky hooks. He goes into the Old Testament and brings that language forward. The Lord is my portion. You support my lot. Portion, inheritance, cup, lot, lines, heritage. Clearly speak to greater realities where the Lord God himself becomes these things. Again, we find this language throughout the New Testament and it represents something far greater than real estate boundaries. God is our portion in Christ. Jesus came to bring us to the Father that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter. And what we have in God is a portion, inheritance, a cup, a lot, a pleasant place, a a beautiful heritage. 
These are the superseding values of the spiritual realities that we will one day in, know and understand and fully see and experience in a new heavens and new earth. Christ is our treasure now and forever. God is our dwelling place now and forever. God is the treasure of the universe. Do not ever trade him in for anything. And notice it's my inheritance, my cup, my lot, me, my, me. There is a way to focus on yourself, and here it is. Your relationship to God. If all you have is yourself, you got this little small world. If you have God, you have everything. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. So I'm going to bless the Lord who's counseled me, the God who has directed my life. Indeed, my mind instructs me (coughs) in the night. Maybe I puzzle about things during the day, but in the calm of the night, things come to me as God brings answers to my concerns, my prayers. I have set the Lord continually before me. This is a decisive thing that we must do. Jesus did it. Consciously set the Lord before him. (coughs) This is commitment. This is God-centeredness. This is our primary pursuit. If we want to talk about a deeper life in Christianity, this is it here. Here's the deeper life. It's not to wander off in contemplation. It's to in everything in the real life, eating your ice cream or emptying your trash, you set the Lord continually before you. Make him your right hand man. The Messiah ends up at God's right hand because he made God his right hand. I will not be shaken. Here's the confidence. When you walk with God, you are going to go through many trials. You're not going to get less trials as a Christian. You're going to get more. So when you sign up for the Lord, when you get baptized, there's some small print that you don't really know is there. You figure it out later usually. And the small print is this. You're going to have a very challenging life. I'm going to make your life very interesting. And you're going to have every opportunity that I can give you in your life to glorify me. Is that how you see your trials? Is that how you see your predicaments? Is that how you see your perplexities? God's against you? Or God's giving you the opportunity to show to him and to the world, to the universe, to angels? Read, by the way, Ephesians chapter 3 that now under principalities and powers might be made known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Another place Paul says, I've been a spectacle to men and to angels. Job, what was Job's life about? Not anybody on earth. The guys on earth really couldn't figure it out. They were given really bad advice because they didn't realize that Job was a spectacle to angels, to Satan himself. Don't be shaken, God is at your right hand. Don't be shaken. (coughs) Have that confidence. Make the right decisions. Some of us look back with regrets in in their lives. My biggest regrets are looking back a few times in my life where I trusted my own methods instead of God. 
And I always wonder what would happen if I had just simply trusted God instead of taking things into my own hand. Some things you're supposed to take into your own hand. But there's some things you're challenged and you just have to wait for God. (coughs) Therefore, my heart is glad. Again, you want some gladness? Here it is. My glory or my soul, my inward being rejoices, my flesh will dwell securely. (coughs) So here, Jesus is talking about in this psalm, the Messiah, the eternal son, is talking about a whole heart, a whole life. Here is the resurrection. No matter what happens to me, no matter what I encounter, should I even die, my flesh is still going to dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Soul here stands for its whole person. I think the lady studied soul this last uh, Wednesday. Soul can be that inward being or it can represent the whole person. You will not abandon who I am to Sheol, that is to the grave. You're not going to leave me there. You're not going to let your holy one undergo decay. This is the Messiah. You will not let your Messiah undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and here is the resurrection. I'm not going to go in the grave, not going to stay in the grave. I'm going to have a path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's where he's going to ultimately be. So we not only have a resurrection, we have been in the eternal presence of God. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So this is a forever thing. So as you look at the psalm and you look at these last verses, you see, why did Peter quote them? Because they very much describe a state of resurrection, a state of incorruption, a state being before God, and a state that is permanent and eternal. And that's the resurrection of Christ. Talked about in Psalm 16, and here are the quotes. One day, I guess in Revelation, we referred to it, they shall see his face, and the Lord God will give them light. This is an eternal place in this psalm. Path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and its pleasures forevermore. All right, well, that's it for Psalm 16. I hope it's a blessing to you. Um, read this psalm. Maybe make it a plan. So I'm going to read it once a week for a while until it really seeps into your bones. This is our hope. This is the resurrection of Jesus and this is the resurrection of you one day. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this psalm. We thank you for its blessedness, its power. We thank you for the spirit of Christ in the psalms. Lord, when people say this Bible is written by a bunch of men, yeah, sure, some people wrote it, but the Spirit of Christ was behind it. These are the words of the living God. These are words of comfort, words of counsel, words of truth, and words of life. And Lord Jesus, just thank you. You died for our sins. You tasted death for us. You went into a grave, into a tomb, and you spent several days in a state of death. And then you rose. And that is our hope. And that is our blessing. That is our future. And that is our eternity. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.